how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters. Did Home Alone, Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Trevor Forrest was a painter before he became a photographer. In his early days, he knew he wanted to tell stories with his photos. Eventually, this led him to a job in cinematography. These days, the English DP is known for his work on Underground, The Leisure Class, TNT's I Am The Night, and Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere. The latest miniseries is based on Celeste Nee's 2017 bestseller, also called Little Fires Everywhere and it follows the intertwined fates of the picture-perfect Richardson family and the enigmatic mother and daughter who append their lives. In this interview, Forrest discusses his unique journey to cinematography, how to capture moments like a documentarian, how to rest the creative mind, and why the best mentor often comes from within. If you enjoyed this interview, join millions of viewers for the new YouTube video essay series, also called Creative Principles. I was an artist, a painter, uh, went to art school and in England and then got into photography pretty quickly because my uh, I did an exchange to France and my studio was so small that I couldn't really do any painting. So I ended up just going out and photographing uh, and then, you know, writing little sort of titles or extended kind of titles to those pictures. So I was always drawn to somehow more than just a still, more than just a, you know, somehow making a story with a with a picture. And um, anyway, that developed over the last, you know, next five years and that sort of thing. And I fell into still photography, working, assisting some people like uh, Nick Knight, who's a fashion photographer, and Albert Watson over in New York. Uh, he's a fashion photographer and portrait photographer. And then... Um, you know, going back and, and after, you know, drawing a lot of experience from those two amazing teachers as well as artists, uh, I, you know, went back and did my own photography, portrait photography. And by this time, I was, I was kind of, I was uh, 
initially I was nervous of photographing people, and then actually then you then I got the confidence to photograph people because I felt it's more of an honourable. If you did if you did a good job, then you were honouring their image rather than taking it, and that was something I sort of played with at a young age. And then um, while I was working with Nick Knight, they were doing a music video, um, and I was assisting them with photography um, and um, working at this studio so that I could do my own work after hours and that sort of stuff. And I looked across the stage and I thought, oh, yeah, that looks interesting. There's more than one person. There's now like 50 people making this music video. And um, and actually to that point, something like clicked at that point. It was more about the camaraderie that I was drawn to and as well as the opportunity to make stories as well as pictures. And I think that was a defining moment of like, oh, I can tell stories with pictures, which are not just 10 images from a fashion story, because that seemed to be my end goal at the time. It, it's more than that. It's much more looping back to my art experience of uh, take, tell it, taking a picture and telling a, a story underneath it to, um, to complement it. it. Everything kind of looped up together at that point. And um, yeah, at that point, I decided I was going to be a cinematographer or at least a filmmaker, let's say that. And um uh, so I found my way through being an assistant to some of those people and then, um, uh, you know, clap loading, first assisting, camera operating, traveling, and still keeping the still photography going all at the same time. And it was all just these layers that sort of took, it probably took about a 10 year period for it all to come together to me to shoot my first feature film. But it really was that. It was that, that was, that was the route to me going, okay, I can do this now. You mentioned uh, um, painting. I know early in your career, early in anyone's uh, creative career, there's a lot of uh, failure and that kind of thing. Did you find like more progress taking pictures? Like presumably you can take hundreds of photos and at the same time you would do like maybe one painting. Did you, did that kind of help you, you progress faster, move along faster? The thing about painting is that you don't really know what the image is until you end it. And um, and so it's a journey to that image. And I think um, with photography, um, you know, you see the image, you grab the image, it's the image, um, until you maybe take it into the printing process. And actually someone who I look to and enjoy his work, Todd Heido, frames it really beautifully, where he photographs like a documentarian and prints like a painter. And and I think that is a really nice thing to carry with you in your toolbox of cinematography in the sense that, you know, so often as we're working with an actor, you know, the moments are passing second by second. And it's your job to capture them if you're the DP and a camera operator or, you know, as a camera operator as well. You're, you're trying to capture these moments. So you're really trying to capture them like a documentarian, seeing them at, at real pace and real time. But when you find those either going into these scenes to create the lighting or when you come out of those scenes to create the grade and to land everything coming together, the painterly side of that can really come back in at that point. So uh, to your question, I think painting is definitely slower in terms of progress, but I think it teaches you more in terms of the detail because of the slowness of it. And then photography teaches you about time and moments and and emotions and catching those emotions in the moment. Um, so if you can put those two things together, then, you know, you have something that is really 
solid, rounded, and emotional at the end of it, I think. And you've been working for a few years now. Do you still find yourself maybe pursuing other creative routes from time to time that also improve your cinematography, like something you wouldn't think that's totally different that might improve your, your day job? Yeah, I mean, my day job is every day. My day job is if I'm not if I'm not shooting a script that I love, but I'm prepping or shooting, developing, grading, anything, is looking for the next script and the next collaboration because as a dp we rely on great collaborations to make great work and I, and I don't think great work comes without those whether they're full of friction or completely smooth it doesn't matter what the collaboration is so i spend a lot of my time reading um going back to um you know for, to, in terms of resting my brain i might pick up a paintbrush or a, a pencil and do some sketching, which slows everything down. And um, and then my own photography, I will always pick up a camera of some sort. I'm not shooting a story of somebody else's script. I will be photographing and collecting. And I think it's essential to have this toolbox and this mental scrapbook of things that you are drawn to, whether it's graphic novels, whether it's a beautiful bit of poetry, Bob Dylan's uh, lyrics of the book I was reading last week. And it was, you know, basically you get like a snapshot of the seventies through his words and his songs read like poetry in the end, if you take the music away. And so, yes, I think there's, um, I think when you have a creative brain, it needs the input as much as the output. And so I end up doing any of those things from reading, music, graphic novels, and photographing my own work. Is it also something you do in, in the research phase? Do you look to, uh, if you're doing like a time, a time period, and look to paintings of the era, like where do you kind of start? What's the first thing you do when you read a screenplay? Yeah, um, you're right. I was actually listening to your podcast or another podcast today about uh, Charles Randolph, about he how he does his deep dive into a world and you consume yourself with it. And I think that's, you know, literature is a way of doing that. If you can, if you have, okay, you have the script and hopefully the script has that period distilled through it because they've gone through many, many drafts. So absolutely at that point, what does the 19th century look like? Or, you know, to go back to one of my films, um, Noble, you know, what does 1980s Vietnam look like? Or what does 1950s Ireland look like? And so the world press is an amazing resource. Um, and um, it's been, you know, it goes back to the 50s, actually. And that has uh, a photographers from the time who were press photographers. And that's wonderful in terms of seeing a truth. I mean, who knows what the truth is in terms of context, but a truth of the time. And so often, for instance, in the 50s, photography was very formal and very slow. And um, and so this is already giving you ideas or giving me ideas of how to move the camera, how simple to make something work, feel. Um, by the, in the 50s, people were living by the daylight. You know, they were getting up in the morning with the sun coming up. They were having dinner under candlelight. They were going to bed after that because they didn't have that many candles. Um, then you have gaslight. And all of these things are little ways into the tools you might start to bring to filmmaking to create this 
period for the viewer. So um, paintings will be the next level, really, I think, because once you have a handle on what type of lighting of the day or what part of the world, winter in Ireland is very blue blacks and sharp whites and soft contrast and fair skins and dark matte fabrics um, with light that falls off as it goes into a room, um, maybe it gets picked up on the other side of the room by the firelight. So you have this mixture of cold daylight and firelight glowing. So, yes, going into a period, you look for your tools in photography that's available. Then you kind of augment that with your own ideas, maybe stepping into some of the photography 1950s for me was Walter Sickert, who was a fantastic but a much earlier 19th century painter in England. But the way he painted people in candlelight and, and gaslight and then outside in the wintry interiors really gave me a way to um, explain or express to the director and the production designer how we could collaborate to create this world and bring some tools to the table. So, um, and sometimes if I've, you know, had a time before a film and, I've, and it's been winter, I've photographed so many of these things. My own photographs will be part of that book of research I go to the meeting with. But I generally would turn up after reading the script and whether I know the director or not, um, I'll turn up with a bunch of ideas in picture form, either my work or somebody else's, um, to look through. And, and actually in that, in that meeting, because it's the meeting of two minds at that point, it's as valuable for someone to say it's definitely not that as much that is, yes, I really want this, um, because it just gives you a roadmap to what they're thinking. And at and that point is a really interesting point, that first meeting. Um, it might be a second meeting because you've met the director, you like each other as people, he likes your work, you like his work or her work, and you have the script, which is your connection. But now, you know, how do you get under each other's skin to now move the story forward and bring it to life? Um that that book, that that sort of thirty to fifty pages of of um, uh, images, ideas, uh, is where you where you get started and start pulling it apart. You mentioned a, a few names earlier in your career. Do you think logistically about approaching mentors, or how do you kind of gravitate towards people that end up teaching you a great deal about your work and the things you're interested in? Absolutely. I mean, I think what's wonderful about the film industry still today, there is like an apprenticeship. You know, I come from, my family comes from Northern England, Manchester. And so there is this wonderful kind of passing from father to son or from, from mother to daughter and from tech, you know, from master or teacher to, to a student to become, to pe for people to come through. So I think mentoring is a really wonderful part of what we do in our industry. Um, yeah, my mentors um, were John Matheson, Seamus McGarvey, uh, Billy Williams. And it was really only due to a little bit of frustration of my own and entrepreneurialism. I decided that I was going to write a proposal to the British Society of Cinematographers and go and sit in their boardroom and go, you know what, you guys know so much about what I'm interested in doing. Would you be open to doing some masterclasses? And so initially they looked a little confused and like, who is this person coming to present this idea to them? And then, you know, slowly but surely um, I met them and had a drink and, you know, was able to tease out details of 
what would be interesting to talk about their work. And what that came out of that was the BSE lighting classes, were, which were two-day classes and five-day classes, uh, all of which I was kind of the, the managing, designing, and producing, and just, you know, just, again, this goes down to, as a, as a young cinematographer, do anything you can to get started. And so what I could do to get started, because I had my photographic background, I just didn't have the uh, knowledge of on-set protocols or how to make images and the stories I wanted to tell in my head. I didn't really have the tools. So I just went to the best people I could find. And this was the BSE at the time. And so those classes run for about two years. Um, I did about uh, 10 two-day classes and about five or six five-day classes, um, all of which I was like the camera operator on. And, um, and what that was is the camera operator was in the middle of all of these lessons, if you like. Um, a five-day class would be the cinematographer posing problems to the cinematographers and the camera operators that came in. And I realized I couldn't be the DP and run the course, so I had to be the camera operator. Um, but during the camera operator, I got to sit on the camera, I got to look through the lens, I got to see how they were shifting the lights, I got to see how people struggled with the lights, and then found answers to it. And so the process of that was, at the time, being completely mirrored by camera image in Poland. And it was by accident that they said, have you been to Poland? And I, I had not at that time, but I went the next year and found that they were doing these masterclasses already. So this, the mentoring one-to-one uh, is one way of doing it to keep people, keep a young cinematographer's um, kind of hopes up, if you like, or energy up or focus up and that sort of thing. But there's nothing like, especially when you're not a cinematographer who um, – you, be, you barely see other cinematographers except the finished product. And, um, but to, when you're a young cinematographer, to see several people uh, doing their job, improvising, because that's what cinematography is, is improvising at every point with the tools that you have at that time. Some people have better tools. Some people you know, are still building their toolbox. Um, but mentoring uh, was less of a one-to-one and more of like how do you put yourself in this field and ideas, pick up what you need, and then put that put that to um, action and um, put that into your own work after you've taken those details away. Um, but um, the best mentor you have is yourself, I think, in terms of like what can I do, what am I interested in, and how can I do it. That's those three things, you wake up every morning and ask that, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, and you probably will end up doing it until the end of your career because everybody does do that still. So I want to get to some of your new work. And this is kind of a broad question, but if you were to summarize uh, maybe just in a couple of sentences, how would you describe the style of I Am The Night versus something like Little Fires Everywhere? Well, they're two different projects. Uh, one was... Um, uh, both were period pieces, but the first project, I'm the Night, I was the second DP coming into that project. And so that has its own discipline, if you like. Um, I, uh, and then uh, Little Fires Everywhere, I was the primary cinematographer and designed everything from lens choice to grade to how to show each season and so on. 
So going back to Iron the Knight, um, creating that period was done. Patty and Matthew had done this amazing job. Matthew Jensen, ASC, was the, was the primary cinematographer. Him and Patty Jenkins did the first two episodes. And um, I was handed the baton of this is how we're doing nighttime. These are the lenses we're using. Um, these are a few film stocks we've used to make your choices. But then after that, me and Victoria Mahoney were very much left to take the Bible that Patty had created and run with that. So it was more of a jumping off pit part or a jumping off um, scenario where you have something you know, and then you really took it as far as you could. And the part of the story that we were telling were um, about loneliness, about this man being trapped by the authorities, about this unraveling string of clues that he was now doggedly following, um, the collision course of both Chris Pine and India Ainsley's characters and how their, their collision now changes the track of the story and how you take it on. And that's a wonderful part of six episodes because uh, Michael McDonough, ASC, also did five and six. So I was handing a baton on to him. So that's the process of that type of project. Um, Little Fires Everywhere um, was the 90s, so slightly less complicated in terms of a uh, creation of a period because um, uh, it's the 90s um, and there are some similarities to what we have today that we have in that period. Some Something has shifted, like, you know, styles, fashion, look. Um, but um, technology of writing was similar. Um, but in the, in the beginning of Little Fires Everywhere, um, the main defi defining factor of how we created that was the, um, the show took place in Ohio, in Shaker Heights, and we were going to shoot it all in Los Angeles. So there's two very different types of light between those two locations. And luckily, I have a house on Shelter Island, which is also on the East Coast. So I had seen and lived there from summer to fall through winter and into the sort of deep, frosted winter that you can really get there. Um, so um, when I read the script what, and the book, actually, that's, this is slight different as well. I'm the Night is an original, uh, ad a, 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 an adaptation of... or let's say, Patty's vision and Sam's vision of the true story uh, with amalgamations of characters and so on, where we are definitely adapting a book um, in uh, Little Fires Everywhere. So what's interesting about Little Fires Everywhere is the drama ramped up from this idyllic, wonderful life with this small uh, introduction of this, this other character, Mia's character, but that very quickly, the drama and the tension between those ratchets up every episode. And uh, what's wonderful about what we found there is that summer to frosted, freezing cold winter is a really beautiful way to sort of go from a very open aesthetic into a very closed, suffocated, and then completely stressful aesthetic as the weather and the rain and the cold kind of close in the interiors. So that was the beginning of designing Little Fires Everywhere. Um, and I think I don't want to, do you want me to say that in a, a, I could say that in a shorter way, but it's kind of the two complex, the two very different um, processes. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's how I would describe them.
Oh, no, it's great. I, I like the longer answers. Um, so, so this book, Little Fires Everywhere, the, the book's uh, fairly large. I mean, it, it's a bestseller. It only came out two years ago. So a lot of people have read this. What clues are in the book that kind of tell you how things are going to look? And what responsibility do you have knowing how many people kind of have an idea about this backstory? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, well, they know the location and the location is specific to America as well. It's like a, a portrait of America or idealized America at that time. Um, and then how it comes crashing down literally, physically and dramatically. Um, so as I said before, the weather was a great way into this. Um, and then, you know, I, as a cinematographer, I read a script and look for themes in the story and and track them to see how they change. And uh, what was wonderful about the way The Little Fires was constructed as a piece of literature is the antagon- the protagonist, the main character, and the antagonist, the, the person that basically changes the direction of the protagonist at all times, swaps backwards and forwards. And this is a really beautiful bit of you know, writing as a tool, because it means that no one is right. Everybody has this struggle. Everyone has their reason for doing something. And then the the answer to it, whether it's right or wrong, they stumble into cul-de-sacs and mistakes over and over and over again, which is why I think people really lead into this story and why it was such a wonderful story to tell, because, um, because of this... Um, almost roller coaster feel um, of the way the story unravels. And the book does that. Celesting had created this really compact, but, um, and this is the magic of a novel like, how do you, how on earth did she get this emotion, detail, the chill of the, mo- the winter mornings, as well as the glow of the summer sun in a pages and words is amazing but you really felt it reading the book and so when Liz uh, Tilligar um, uh, took the book and and extrapolated this into eight episodes some things were, were stretched out and some ending the ending was changed and that's kind of a, a buzz point of the of the show and how things are developed adapted and then how books are made into tv is now a really fascinating uh medium it's almost become its own medium in that respect and something that hello sunshine and simpson street are really focusing on now but um my responsibility and and jeff waldron who was our other cinematographer um had to create this world um and luckily the prep that i was given by the producers enabled me to create mine and Jeff's office. And so what I did is I made an entire office with references to the temperature of the day, um, literally the the, the high and low temperature of the day, what that would be in summer, fall and winter. That gave us clues to how the grade would change. Um, I reached out to Seth and Sonnefeld and at Company 3 and said, look, I'd love you to do this project. We had worked on Iron the Night together, and so we sat down and designed these different grades that we shot in the camera. We put them in the camera to shoot each period, and I was able to give these batons of like grades and lenses and approaches to Jeff for him to continue and take on to, you know, to produce his uh, episodes. Um, which in the end, you know, you should not be able to see the differences. There's one episode. That's 
fully flashbacks. Um, we used, we chose to use anamorphic lenses there. But again, you know, I went back to Panavision, which is my old family from the very beginning, and looked at different anamorphics and. Uh, Dan Zazaki, who's uh, again another close collaborator, helped me tweak the uh, the lenses and the elements inside those uh, um, those anamorphic lenses to create the look for the film, which has to look like Ohio, but again we're shooting in Los Angeles. So there are several levels from lens choice to grade at the end, and how we control the light in the middle which are creating this world, which you have to think is Ohio shelter in, in um, Shaker Heights. Do you think there, so I spoke with this, may, this may sound like a weird transition, but I spoke with the, uh, some of the creators of the um, Dark Crystal series and they're using real puppets versus like CGI. Do you say, do you see a, a noticeable difference? And then they like the way the light looks and everything, but is that something you see as well when you're shooting with a gray lens versus some kind of edit, like after it's already been filmed, do you, do you see a, or maybe even like a subconscious feeling when you're watching, do you notice the difference with something like that? Yeah, I think the important thing to talk about that is um, when you're looking through a lens, you're responding to it. You're, and because there's, there's three things here. There's the camera and the lens, there's a person in front of you, and then there's the, le- the, the light and the environment that you're working within. So if you can see all those three elements, you can think, oh, I want to just change this. Like, I'm just going to open the aperture a little bit and have a bit more focus. I'm going to just take away some of the light to the left so that there's more contrast across the texture of that person. And going back to puppets, actually, you know, sometimes you want to see the texture of the material that these things are made from, like the feathers and the glisten of the eyes of the puppet and that sort of thing, to bring these things to life, how you approach um, an actual person, you want to put an eye light in their eyes, or you want to bring attention to their hair for beauty reasons, or or their out their um, their costume for for reality reasons. Um, so I think when you have that, um, it's different to taking the, all those three elements and putting them into VFX uh, because the VFX is a uh, a perfect environment. You can change, polish, and um, adapt things in exactly the same way. But I feel like a VFX artist is different to a cinematographer, although they're doing exactly the same job. But a VFX artist um, is somebody who is is closer to a painter, I think, uh, and you know, as well as being an incredible technician to create all these lifelike elements in a computer space. Um, But I think um, when you want something to feel real, like a puppet from Dark Crystal, I think it's important to try and put it in the real situation and the real world to have the viewers want to lean in and believe in those characters and connect to those characters. Um, I love animation. I love the effects because that allows you the scale of, uh, of infinite scale of anything, you know, you can have the whole galaxy in your shot and the person in the foreground. You just can't do that on a set without the effects, without something. And, um, and I think that, you know, the Mandalorian and the Marvel comics and, and now the Marvel, uh, sorry, the Marvel series uh, TV show that they're, they're now making as well. A lot of that 
scalars in VFX. And I really feel like the cinematographer could be closer to the VFX artist, almost like a two-part process because um, each one of them is fighting to have... Um, to have more real, realism in the frame and both parties can bring so much to it. I, I, I really enjoy the collaboration I have with VFX artists because of those reasons. I know that they can, the bit that I wasn't able to do on the day, they can take that bit further. But I think to your question, um, especially a puppet that you want to feel real should be at least shot in a in a real situation with real light and real lenses to have that beginnings, and I think at the best VFX is a is always a combination of both anyway, um, because um, what your what your eye sees in the first say two feet is essentially is is really important for you to go oh I know what that is it's a feather it's a it's a furry outfit and then behind that the world behind it whether it's the trees or the galaxy or a huge mystical mountain with steam rising up the side of it that can be the effects because it's really the background to this foreground that you need to believe in um but um, funnily enough, I, I did both things at the beginning of my career. When I was doing first short films, I actually worked on a computer game called The Getaway. Um, a woman called Katie Elwood uh, helped me get that job with Brendan McNamara, and I designed all the cinematography inside the cut pieces, in the, which is like a 90-minute film, inside a computer. And so I could put the lens anywhere I wanted. I could change the light. I could have the contrast and or, you know, change lighting exposures and shot. All of this I could do inside the game. And I did that for about a year while I was sort of struggling along doing my short films. So that's sort of a tip to young cinematographers of do anything you can. Um, and then um, in terms of shooting puppets, I worked on Thomas the Tank Engine uh, with uh, amazing models, all shooting on film, on Mitchell cameras, on an overhead rig. Um, and then very quickly after that, there's like a kid's TV show um, called Bookaboo, which was, again, all puppets. And uh, the three episodes, I, the three seasons I shot in between doing my first films all won BAFTAs. Um, for best cinematography, but it was for a kids show, so it wasn't what you were looking for. As that sort of like, uh, oh, I can't wait to get. Uh, uh, it wasn't the back you were looking for as a cinematographer. You wanted, you know, something for more like a feel thriller or your horror film or your big romantic period piece. But um, it was the beginnings, and it taught me a lot actually about something like shooting puppets um, and and how you can use that that beautiful line between. Um, foreground realism and background scale through VFX. Were you involved with the opening sequence? I mean, it's so detailed with the fire and the violin and, and the and the set pieces that you're kind of looking for as you're watching. Is that something that you can tell any stories about? Sure. Um, you know, it was one of those things that in episode one we didn't shoot until the end because we knew in Little Fires Everywhere it was going to appear in the first episode and the last episode. So conversations about how um, 
uh, how we were going to come across the fire, or how big the fire was, how we were going to build the fire, how we were going to build the house and, and burn this house in, in Hancock Park down, um, was something we, me and Lynn did in storyboard form to begin with in, um, in episode one. But we really didn't pick up those storyboards until episode eight or in our prep of episode eight because um, – it was just something that everybody wanted to take their time to get their head around. And we knew that um, there were going to be so many uh, edits and thriller-esque kind of twists and turns happening through those next seven episodes. We wanted to land the fire in this operatic and sort of crescendo with that, with those things in mind. So during, during our uh, location scout for episode eight, Lynn and I were back on set uh, near, the, near the Hancock house, the main house. And I was taking pictures of my, uh, my camera and my iPhone and my Artemis and everything else. And then I said, well, look, you know, how, we should get into this. We should get into burning the house down. And they're like, okay, sure. Well, let's, you know, let's start with a concept drawing. I was like, oh, I can, I'll just do that on my, on my iPad. So I took a picture of my iPhone, sucked it into my iPad, took my pencil out and started drawing where physically we think the flames would be. Um, the fire starts in the children's rooms, which is on the right-hand side of the house. So they would be more progressed. We knew that there was a central staircase. So that would be a, a form of air where, you know, it, it would maybe, there'd be a collapse. I thought maybe something like uh, a collapse would be really beautiful and dramatic element of seeing this house i don't we didn't really get there in the end there's there's a couple of shifts but the collapse was just too complicated for what we had time to show um but initially it was a iphone photograph with me marking up with um flames here collapse there um flames building down at the front uh the bushes on fire and these are just yellow and orange squiggles i have on this diagram and then i went back to the office and you know luckily i was a painter at one point so i kind of got into it a bit and took a bigger um file and and started sketching flames um i had also ironically just done a big Jack Daniels um, fire commercial before getting little fires everywhere, which meant going to Tennessee, going and the whole concept of that commercial was about how that the people that distill the whiskey are all trained as firefighters, who you know who would know this. So what they do, they 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 in their uh, in their lunch break they go down to this fireplace, they put on their fire brigade gear and they set fire to these enormous fires like. And they also, in, uh, at Jack Daniels, they make their own um, charcoal to distill the whiskey through. So to make charcoal, you have to have an inferno. You have to stack it, cross-stack it in a certain way so that the heat that gets built up in, in the middle of those sticks lights everything else, but then reflects back to then really bake in. And the temperatures you get when you stack wood like that are phenomenal. And um, actually, they have a, a fireproof roof above it, which is a um, uh, a dome, and that reflects heat back down. 
So I took pictures and shot for like a week at Jack Daniels and just saw flames like I'd never seen before, like the flames of hell with this because they because the heat was pushing down on the flames, the flames was like reaching up, the tendrils of the ends of the flames were licking around. It's like you'd, you'd have to look at Renaissance paintings to to really see this, but we were seeing it for real and shooting it. So I grabbed these pictures from the commercial that I'd shot six or eight months before and started sticking them on the house and suddenly started to have this sort of idea of uh, how operatic this could be. We definitely handed that on to a concept artist who took it on further and worked with the VFX uh, company that we had, and they were on set with it at the time. Um, but the conversation all started with, like, well, how do we do this? We have stood on the lawn, and I started scribbling. And, um, and then, you know, going back to our storyboards that Lynn and I had done three or four months before, we had the idea of, like, how do you reveal something? Because any good story is about a reveal. And um, with little fires everywhere being in the title, you knew it was coming. So you want to hold the audience back as long as possible. And we actually see it from two or three different points of view. We see it from Bill's point of view as he approaches, having his, like, smoking a cigar and listening to uh, music in the car and that sort of thing, and, uh, and then the shock of him seeing it. But then... The other part of it was Reese's character um, really looking at it in this sort of meditative way, like, I did this, I've destroyed this, all of my actions have led to this, and there's nothing better for a cinematographer to have an image that tells the story for you in so many different layers of the main actress, the main character, finding their answer to their life in a single frame or a few frames, portrait, mid-shot, wide shot from behind her of this inferno. And they're all the different things, the layers that we put together. There's one other layer that, um, that we also had to do is because the interiors could not be shot on the stages that we were shooting on in the lot stages. So, um, so we took the, uh, the sets that we built to a burn stage uh, where we could actually set them on fire. There was a limit to the flame we could do on stage, which was what we could do with maybe a six or two or three six-foot flame bars. We were allowed to do that. So the images, any images you see of the characters standing in front of flames or shooting through flames back to them, they were all done on the stage with flame bars and um, haze, um, little Bunsen burners under the lenses and those sort of things. And then after that element, you, when, you, when you see their point of view in their house burning, then that's done on the burn stage. And then finally, they're running out of the house, down that corridor. Some of those um, flames are VFX add-ons, but some of it's also, it's a mixture, like I was saying before, of real flame and then added flame. And I think that's always the most successful version of the use of VFX. Um, and then outside, you've seen it, that the, the, the shot of the house burning down um, is, is what we did um, uh, through lighting effects and flame bars on the night, and then augmenting that with elements that we shot on the burn stage. 
um, on uh, maquettes of the house we were built so that the flames would lick up the side of the roof or around the guttering correctly. Um, and that was, you know, going back to the Jack, the Jack Daniels commercial, they were the sort of things you really got excited. I got excited about because it's like trying to bring those sort of tendrils of inferno, hell-like flame coming under the guttering is like so cool to be able to recreate that. And, um, you know, a lot of this all comes down to producers really digging in and and finding a way to make this happen. So um, I've said this a few times in the last six months is like, you know, as DPs, we're, we, we can do what we're allowed to do in, in some regards because of the limitations of production, especially television, which is now making eight hours rather than 90 minutes or two hours. Um, so really hats off to the producer to really taking this sketch developing this idea with me and then taking it to its massive kind of operatic ending uh, with all the different parts they need to do it with. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles and give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.